Okay, good morning. I've come all the way to the Richard Doll building, um, which is part of the University of Oxford, um, to talk to Will Harrington and Richard Haynes about their clinical trial, looking at a drug that I cannot, for the life of me, um, pronounce. It's empagliflozin. I'm not sure if they have a short version for it, but I don't know if I'm going to say empagliflozin. That wasn't too bad, actually. Empagliflozin. Empagliflozin. Anyway, why did I never just have normal names for these things that are much easier to pronounce, especially for more people who rely on an audio medium like me where they might have to t- say the name quite a few times. Now, we're going to talk to them today quite broadly about what a clinical trial is. And I think everyone is... Well, I think everyone's born a natural scientist, really. I mean, if you've ever been driving home and wondered if one way is quicker than the other and then you've tried that way, that's an experiment. Um... You know, it happens all the time, people trying to figure out best ways. We're sort of natural scientists as humans. Our curiosity and our ability to sort of think of ways of testing out our ideas. It's all science. Um, Where these guys who run clinical trials take it to the next level is they are fastidious about making these experiments as fair as possible. Um, And we like to talk about that in terms of using the word control. And we've got to control for lots of different things, especially in a human population. Um, Obviously, humans all live different lives. Um, But if we're making, trying to make comparisons for people, we need everything to be as similar as possible. And that can become quite tricky when you're running a clinical trial. So we're going to talk to um, Will and Richard a lot about how you design a clinical trial, what sort of considerations you have to make. And then we're going to delve in and use their study, Empakidney, to basically talk about these considerations. So looking forward to hearing their thoughts on the process of designing a clinical trial, um, the sacrifices and compromises you have to make along the way, because obviously we can't um, expect 6,000 people to live identical lives where we can control every facet of their existence, their diet, their experiences, their exercise. And there obviously has to be certain compromises made because people have to have lives. Um, So... You might hear us talk about uh, a term called inclusion criteria, um, and that's a set of um, bullet points that we would expect patients to meet in order to be eligible for the study. Um, And obviously you want those to be as tight as possible, really, and that that would make sure that the population that you're studying are all as similar as possible. Um, However, if you make it too tight, you're really going to struggle to find those patients. If you make it too specific, it's great on the one hand, in terms of a scientific experiment because you're starting with a population that is as similar as they could be but you'll never find that number of patients um so the compromises have to be made there you have to loosen the inclusion criteria a little bit so that you stand a reasonable chance of getting the number of participants that you need um but obviously every slight loosening you make of your inclusion criteria that initial population is getting a little bit different and that introduces more noise into the system So I'd be really interested to hear them explain it much better than I can uh, and to hear their thoughts on it. We're in a lovely room here in the Richard Doll building. Um, Nice video conference suite. I've set the gear up. We're sort of drowning in a sea of cables here. Um, When you buy the cables for all this equipment, I think they expect you to be strutting around the stage like Freddie Mercury. Um, So each of the cables is sort of 10 feet long. Uh, That's probably great if you're on stage. Um, But I'll be sat sort of three four feet away from uh will and richard today um so the 10 feet cable we've got three of them and they're all sort of jumbled on the table uh looks messy hopefully sounds great the levels sound great the audio sounds great everything's great we're ready to go i hope you enjoy so first of all i'd just like you to introduce yourselves and, and and talk about what your involvement with this project is i'm will harrington um, I am a nephrologist and clinical trialist, an associate professor at um, the MRC Population Health Research Unit here running um, in, uh, the EMPA kidney trial. And I am funded by Kidney Research UK and the MRC through the uh, Professor David Kerr uh, Joint Clinician Scientist Award, um, which is providing support for me to look at large-scale randomised evidence. Um, so... Um, um, that funding allows me time to run trials, um, to run my large-scale epidemiology projects, which means looking at studies of risk factors, and also allows me to spend one day a week um, running my um, renal clinic in Wickham, um, recently moved from Milton Keynes. 
say that quite humbly, but it is, yeah, it's quite a big deal. But uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so I'm Richard Haynes. I'm a uh, kidney doctor consultant here in the Oxford Kidney Unit, um, and I've worked here at the University of Oxford since 2006, mainly on clinical trials, either in cardiovascular disease, but also in kidney disease, in transplantation, and in chronic kidney disease. Um, and what sort of splits do you guys have with your clinical commitments? Uh, so I do a clinic a week um, in one of the satellite units in Aylesbury near Oxford. Um, and then I'm on call for the kidney units about four times a year for a week at a time. Um, and I have a similar split. I do a uh, approximately one day's clinical work, um, and then I do six days research. Yeah, wow, well, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, full-time, two full-time jobs. Cool. So um, clinical trials, what interested you guys? How did you, how did you get to sort of come in? What was your journey through medical school and then your specialisation and then your, how did you branch into your interests in academia? Um, well, um, my journey through medical school was one of a lack of kidney disease education. I won't tell you which medical school I was at. It wasn't Oxford. Um, but my first house officer job was with a nephrologist. Um, and I immediately got captured by um, the conversations we had and um, developed my own um, training program through nephrology services, ending up here in Oxford as a registrar. Um, and uh, what I've reflected on as I went through that pathway w with the different hospitals I worked in was the very different practice that, that went on in different renal units. Um, the patients were all on dialysis or had a kidney transplant, but there were many medications they were taking, which varied by, by department and by hospital and even by doctor. And when you look behind it, it was because there wasn't the evidence base to particularly define precisely how patients should be treated. And I think it was frustration in the fact that there were differences in practice without the evidence behind it, mm -hmm. which drove me into clinical trials and seeing other fields like cardiology, where they had adopted large-scale clinical trials and had a wide evidence base, mm -hmm. and contrasting experience with nephrology services where um, there wasn't that, that evidence base. And so I wanted to learn how the cardiologists had done it and dedicate my time to running trials like they had done mm -hmm. in the renal space. Mm-hmm. Um, so my journey to renal is a little bit different. People often ask, why do you end up being a kidney doctor? And the best answer I can give is that when I was, I grew up locally near here. Um, and when I was doing my A-levels, my mum decided that I needed a summer job to keep me out of trouble and to make a bit of money. And she lined me up. Um, we had a friend who worked on the, in the kidney unit here and they needed a um, auxiliary nurse as they were then or a healthcare assistant. So I, en I ended up as a healthcare assistant on the renal ward. Um, as an 18-year-old um, and saw some pretty amazing things and yeah. met some uh, quite inspiring people. And I, I did that throughout my medical training. Every holiday, I would go back and do some do quite a lot of shifts. It was reasonably well paid as holiday jobs went. Um, and then when it came to choosing what I wanted to do as a doctor, it just seemed fairly normal. So um, rather strangely, I've now been a healthcare assistant, a medical student, um, a senior house officer, a registrar, and now a consultant on the same, on exactly the same wow. kidney ward. That's, that really, must be quite rare. It's, it, there are pictures of me in the, uh, playing netball for the renal ward team um, <laughs> as an 18-year-old, um, but I try and keep them hidden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, but there's... Will's looking very excited to find me. <laughs> if only this wasn't a podcast and yeah, have yeah, it up yeah, on the yeah. screen now. <laughs> um, so... And some of the doctors who I remember meeting some of the doctors and they and they, I remember seeing some patients and they and the, and you know meeting them, chatting with them a lot, getting to know them really well in the sort of way that you get to know somebody when you're washing them every day for um, six weeks because they've got acute kidney injury and can't do it for themselves, um, and never really thought about doing anything else. Um, how I came to do research is is different. I. There was a, I was a trainee here in Oxford and there's a very strong um, link between the kidney unit and some of the basic science research that goes on in Oxford. You've done podcasts with um, Sir Peter Ratcliffe yeah, before. Did, His, yeah. you know, it used to be that most registrars from the kidney unit went and did some research in his lab and did incredibly good stuff. But I knew that if I went into his lab, I would just break something um, <laughs> repeatedly and become very unpopular. And I, need, I wanted to do something more clinical. Um, and so asked around about it and was eventually introduced to somebody who works here called Colin Bajant, who's my boss and Will's boss, um, who 
who's told me a bit about what they do here and suggested I came to try it. I actually came here to work on a, a trial in cardiovascular disease because that's where the job opportunity was. Um, and so learned the what I sometimes call the dark arts of clinical trials, work on a cardiovascular trial, um, but then started ap learning to apply them to kidney disease. Yeah. No, it's interesting you say the, the dark arts of clinical trials because my sort of thinking of it is that everybody, everybody is quite a natural scientist you know people would be driving home from work wonder if one route's quicker than the other one day they try it um i think where the sort of nuance comes in is spotting okay that's great you could do route a or route b and which one's quicker but have you controlled for time of day weather you know all the other sort of factors that might affect and i think that's where you know, I'm I, I, I'm completely naive to clinical trials. It's not my it's not my area at all. And I might design a trial and say, okay, well, we're giving patient A treatment one and giving patient B treatment two, and that's it. That's not it, is it? That's not it at all. So when I looked at the title of your um, study, there's a lot of terms in there. I think to really pin down what you're doing. So it's a multi-center, international, randomized, parallel group, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial of EMPO. Glyphlosin um, once daily to assess cardiorenal outcomes in patients with chronic kidney disease. And I'm sure that's as succinct as you could get it. I don't think it's any slight on you guys that that's a long title. But there's a lot in there that's sort of explaining the, the sort of controls and the way that you're making this trial a fair test. I think trials are beautifully simple at their best. They're, they're very simple experiments. If you experiments is one word of calling them, where you try and work out whether one treatment is better than another treatment um, and I think the key word probably in that title isn't double blind it's probably randomized yeah okay. it's probably the really important word that people need to understand because there are so many treatments out there Will's talked about doctors using all sorts of different treatments in different in hospitals and they often do that when they don't really don't know which one's better than any other and how do you work out whether one treatment's better than another um, one of the key things you need is randomization to do that. Um, there aren't really any shortcuts um, to working out whether treatment A is better than treatment B without randomizing between the two, unless you're very lucky and you have an amazing treatment. And we do in kidney disease, we do have some amazing treatments. We have kidney transplantation um, and nobody would doubt that having a kidney, if, you're, if your kidneys have failed, that having a transplant yeah. is very good for you. Yeah. Um, so you don't need randomization to show that. But most, most treatments, particularly tablets that people take every day aren't as effective as having a kidney transplant so you need randomization to be able to work out whether they're better or not mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the really that's the really key word and I think the most important word in that title is far too long <laughs> okay. um, um, as is the drug name um, and um, yeah it's, it's randomization that matters so that you you get a group of people and you divide them you randomize people like tossing a coin to decide whether they get treatment A or they get treatment B. And the, when you've, if you do that enough times, then you end up with a, two groups of people who are pretty much the same as each other. The only difference is whether they get he got head or tails yeah. on the yeah. coin toss. And then you know that the differences you see, if you give one of them treatment A and treatment B, you know that the differences that you see in how they do are due to treatment A or treatment B, and it's not due to um, whether the d doctor decided yeah. that they were going to give them one treatment or another. It's not due to the time of day. As you yeah. say, in your, ca your car driving analogy is a good one. Um, it's nothing to do with anything of that. It's simply to do the differences of the treatment. Yeah. Um, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. And then I guess after randomization, then you have the consideration of double blind. Um, and I think the word that comes to mind, and I always teach my son whenever he's trying to ask a question of me or he's doing experiments at home is be systematic so in the process of randomization you've created two often two populations which are identical in every way the population apart from the fact they're receiving the treatment or not um, but what you need to do is maintain that randomized comparison throughout the trial so you've created this experiment but as you follow the patients up through the experiment, you need to make sure that balance is maintained. And you ensure that that is maintained by ensuring that they're all followed up with the same procedures. Um, they all followed up with the same, same regularity. There's no difference in the follow-up dependent on which intervention they're given, intervention A or intervention B. 
Um, and to ensure that happens and no bias can creep in either by differences in behavior of the patient or even of the people running the study, you can blind people with their interventions if at all possible. Um, so in um, studies of drugs, um, what we tend to do is try and create something called a placebo. And a placebo is a drug which should ideally look, taste, feel, smell, and in every respect identical to the, the treatment, the active treatment. Um, and the patients are unaware, therefore, which treatment they're allocated to because they could be placebo or the active treatment. And so are the research coordinators or the study nurses and also the doctors that oversee the study. So are the people at the very top of the study who've designed it and who are overseeing all of the procedures for the study. So are the statisticians until the very end of the study and all the procedures are complete. And then that blind is broken. So we sometimes we call that an unblinding meeting and the blind is broken and the results appear. Um, three or four years of, of hard work from the participants. <laughs> That's a high-pressure meeting. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the magic of randomization is, is shown. And until that point, um, nobody is really aware of what's happening because no one can really predict yeah. the trial result. Yeah. So double-blind is really this, um, this in insurance of, 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 a, of systematic follow-up. Um, and assurance that no systematic biases get introduced once you've created this the wonder, the magic of two random populations which are yeah. the same in every way apart from their test intervention. Yeah, I mean, I really feel that in the lab with some of the experiments I do. I try and get the, I try and make the analysis of everything I do as objective as possible. I do a lot of um, wound healing assays, and s sometimes for whatever reason I can't use the automated system and I measure the area by hand, and there's a lot of grey area in that in terms of. Is that a protrusion from a cell or is that a bit of debris? And you find, I find my eyes flicking to the sort of identifier of the cell line or the treatment. It's just such a natural human instinct to do, you know, and I'd be trying my best to not be biased. And then I notice myself starting a behavior that is leading towards me being biased. So, you know, with the, with the greatest will in the world and the, the most self-discipline you could possibly exercise, there's, there's no way you wouldn't, you know, if you weren't blind to treatment, you wouldn't end up just saying, like, how are you feeling? Are you okay? You know, I don't even know what it would be. Just a slight change in behavior that you can't even, you wouldn't even notice. So, yeah, yeah, the double blind stuff is really important. One thing I was sort of thinking about is, you know, it's quite easy for me as a bench scientist to really easily control the environment of the cells I'm working on so that the difference between one Petri dish and another would literally be the treatment. And that's obviously... You know, in, in vitro experiments have their pros and cons and one of their big pros is that you can do that so when it comes to clinical trials and your I suppose this leads into you setting up your inclusion criteria which are the set of terms by which you would decide to include a patient or not what sort of compromises are there in terms of I suppose you want to make them as tight as possible so that your population is as homogenous as possible perhaps but then you'd never recruit the number of patients you needed if you kept... So what's the sort of compromise and sacrifices you have to make there? Yes, I think this is a really good question because I think it's... I think the kidney kidney medicine, kidney research has a really strong um, really strong background in, in bench research, as you say. And I think often when you're talking about clinical trials to kidney doctors... Um, it, they just aren't. There haven't been very many of them. Sadly, kidney kidney medicine is at the bottom of the league when it comes to the number of trials that have been done or the quality of the trials that have been done. There are some notable exceptions, but um, by and large, kidney medicine is a bit behind. And explaining to colleagues who may have a basic science background that you want to do a trial, and the, it sometimes is confusing because we do things quite differently. So. I think there is, you can argue that you want all your patients to be as homogeneous as possible so that it's very easy to tell what your treatment's doing. But actually, that's not very useful. When the result of that trial comes out, you end up with a trial result that applies to 1% of the population. Right. And that's, sure. that's <coughs> not what we want to do. I think Will and I are both very keen that the results of the trials that we run are applicable to a broad range, broad range of people. So you have to test it in a broad range of people. Patients people are all very different to each other no matter how much you try and control things there are there are always differences and so the best approach i think is to is to is to get a very heterogeneous population but a very big heterogeneous population um so that when you randomize them you still have two groups which are pretty much the same yeah 
but the results you can be pretty confident apply across the population yeah. that you've studied. So we don't. So the inclusion criteria, we actually try and keep them as simple as possible so they can be as broad as possible. Okay. And that means that you can make your trial as big as possible. Yeah. And trial size is a real advantage. One of the things that this unit does that we're both lucky enough to work in is it runs really big trials. And there are some massive advantages of that to have big trials. The answers that they give are always very clear um, and really have the chance to change practice because nobody wants to... You know, as Will said, it can take three or four years to run one of these things. You don't want to end up doing that, and then everybody goes, "So what?" Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've never really thought about it that way at all. So yeah, you you want your population that would take part in the trial to reflect the population that turns up to clinic as broadly as possible. Yeah, there's a there's another technical term which we call generalizability. So we want the results of the trial to be generalizable to the widest possible group of people. Um, and the way to do that is to include a wide range of people. And if you think the drug might work with a preformed hypothesis, so you've got an idea that it might work particularly well in a certain group, then you can predefine within your trial analysis to particularly look at that group and compare it to the other group. But what has been really rather remarkable in a large number of the randomized trials from cardiology, from which a lot of um, a lot of the, the previous work that's influenced us has, has has been done in that field, is that. Actually, if you look at the treatments such as lowering your LDL cholesterol, it's actually very rare that you find a subgroup where there may be different benefits in, in relative terms. Um, so these drugs tend to work as well in the old and the young, in men and women, um, in people with prior cardiovascular disease and people who have not yet developed cardiovascular disease. So in actual fact, the best way we think, and this is, this is we are the population health research unit, so we're going to get, take a population approach, is to is to recruit very large numbers and, and therefore the result of the trial will have relevance to the wide population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, if you want to look at a tight group of people, we'll do that at the end. You can pull that out because you've got pull, that data there, yeah. Because we've got the data there. But we also haven't stifled ourselves by just studying one group of people yeah. and then getting an answer on that people and then having to do the trial and then that taking another three or four years to study the next group of people where we think there may be benefit um, but wasn't tested in the first group. Okay, yeah, no, I totally get that now. It's really changed my viewpoint on trials. That's great. Um, so it's quite important then to lay down before you do the study what you're going to look at, uh, and I get that. Is there any scope for any sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, a sort of post hoc analysis? If you it, it, Like how okay is it to look at what data you're getting as you go through? I don't know, like halfway through the trial, you might start to see something useful, but you didn't. Is, is that still sort of ethical and okay to do that? Or what are the issues around that? Um, so during the trial, generally, um, the people running the trial would remain completely ignorant to, the, to what the emerging results are. Um, so the MPKidney trial that you've, you've um, mentioned earlier that um, Will and I are running, we don't know what's going on in terms of the effect of treatment during that trial. Um, but there are a group of people that... Um, we call them the data monitoring committee, um, who are a special group of people completely independent of us. So they work, the chairman um, used to work at the University of Edinburgh. There's a couple of people from America on it who have no other connection with us or with the trial. Um, Every few months, they do get to see how the results of the trial are emerging. And they're a really important group of people because they can see whether there are some harms that we didn't yeah. know about, that yeah. nobody had guessed, yeah. that are emerging. Or they can see that the treatment is actually really effective, more effective than we sort of dreamt when we wrote the protocol. And if they think that the trial has answered the question one way or the other, either the treatment is unbelievably good or unexpectedly bad, they can actually recommend that the trial stops. But unless that happens, we will remain completely ignorant until that meeting that Will described earlier where... You know, it's terrifying. You walk into the room yeah. and somebody just turns over a piece of paper to you and shows you what you've been doing for yeah. the last four years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and uh, but, So it's important that when they turn that piece of paper over, we have specified exactly what the analyses are going to be because if we, if we look at the results and then decide how we want to analyse it, then just like you with your measuring the wound healing, we'll introduce bias because yeah. we'll, we'll just... Down, look at some results which look favourable and then yeah. try and make them look a bit yeah. more favourable so we write it all down beforehand 
that's not to say that you can't then later go and look when you see something interesting explore it a bit more but you then just have to be really honest yeah, and say yeah. this was not what there's a word pre-specified we right. did not pre-specify this when we didn't know what the results yeah. were we, this is us yeah. exploring the data um, and therefore you know take it I, de- I hate to say this on a renal podcast but take it with a pinch of salt okay, yeah. <laughs> just to add that um, when we set out to run these trials for example in kidney, we were setting out the protocol back in 2016 and things do change over time um, so we do reflect on the design um, we can set everything out as we want it to be but not the plan doesn't always go exactly as you want it to and so for example we will monitor the trial population as it's recruited to see what types of patients are coming into the trial and we'll also start to look at the, the, the risk of that population so occasionally we might find that the experiment we set out to do isn't perhaps quite as large as it could be or should be and we need to make some modifications to the either inclusion criteria or the size of the trial to get the types of patients in we really wanted to study. So although we don't adapt to the design in large in, in, in large amounts, you know, everything is as pre-specified as we can, um, there may be situations where we might make tweaks to the trial design to make sure that all the efforts of the patients and all the efforts of the, the collaborating doctors and all the efforts of the coordinating centre staff that run the trial is not in vain at the end, at the end of the trial by yeah. it having been a little bit too small and, yeah. and it should have been a little bit bigger and, and we should have made that change early on. It sounds like there's a lot of um, sort of independent witnessing of all this sort of process and it, like you say, everything's really clear and open and if you did... Um, I don't know, move the goalposts afterwards, you'd just be very clear about that in anything you did publish that, like you say, wasn't a pre-specified um, experiment. But however, we did see something interesting. Yeah, I, like, I, think, I think that's all great. I think it's unique, really, in that there's just such dedication from such large numbers of people to a task of addressing one key question, one key scientific question. It takes many years. So running that trial, that's one of the responsibilities of the steering committee, a group of experts who, who meet often every six months perhaps more regularly um, to review how the trial is going and make sure that the assumptions at the design phase hold true long term throughout the trial um, so it's not like not quite like setting a boat to sail and watching it float off we do still hold on to the rigging yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and make sure it's going the right direction so obviously when you get to the end of that three four five years however long it had been uh, and you turn your piece of paper over and blind the the data and get the results and the drug that you're testing hasn't worked um it's difficult isn't it because that's sort of really quite valuable information all the same to be like look we're using this drug and actually there's no clinical evidence that it's doing any better so obviously that's disappointing because you want to find a drug that's working for your patients is that still publishable for you guys in terms of trying to get negative data if you want to call it negative data um out there um yeah how do you find have you had a trial that's turned a negative result and what do you think the utility of that is um i think will's very brave to be working with me on this trial because <laughs> i have quite a track record in trials i work on coming up with um, not the expected results ah. um, <laughs> um this one i think is a bit more of a banker but we'll we'll wait and see um so the first, as I say, when I first came to research, I came to work in, on a cardiovascular trial, and that was testing a drug called niacin. Niacin is actually vitamin B3. It's in the cornflakes that we had for breakfast this morning um, in sort of small amounts. But if you take large amounts of niacin, um, it does good things to your cholesterol, to your blood pressure, all sorts of good things. So it's actually been in use for over 50 years as, uh, as a treatment for, for um, cholesterol um, particularly in America, but also elsewhere in the world. Um, but it's never been properly tested. Um, so the trial I came to work on um, was a trial called Thrive, and it tested niacin to see whether it did what everybody for the past 50 years thought it had been doing. Um, and so I started working here in 2006, and I think in 2012 um, I went to that unblinding meeting. So that was quite a lot of work had gone into that. Um, turned over the piece of paper and saw that the drug did nothing in terms of right. protecting p- protecting people from heart attacks and strokes. Which and I is imagine what we that was quite, it to do. quite a shock if the dogma was the <laughs> It was a bit of a shock. Um, and, but then we turned the page and then we looked at what the safety, what, because that was 
what we thought the benefits would be. And then we had a whole set of analyses set up to look and see how safe niacin was. And all the public, all the publications of that date have been that niacin is a very safe drug. It's a vitamin after all. What yeah. can it do? Um, and we saw things that nobody had expected. So we saw that niacin was increasing the risk of people having infections, increasing the risk of them developing diabetes, increasing wow. the risk of them getting to admitted to the hospital with bleeding. Um, and we were quite taken aback. Wow. Um, and that actually led to very rapid changes in niacin and people stopped using it wow. in large numbers. So although the trial didn't have the, the results we wanted, yeah. we did, it did have an effect yeah. and it quite, quite a big effect. I think the advantage of when you do these big trials, they will get published. They right. should get published. I mean, there's clearly all trials that are being done should be published. Otherwise, I mean, there's huge ethical questions when doing a trial and then not publishing the yeah. results. Yeah. But for the sort of big trials that are being done, everybody knows about them and everybody's waiting for the results. Yeah. Um, and so getting them published um, isn't the problem. But whether you have the impact from that yeah. on public health is, a, is out of our control. That sounds like that nice and example is a, is a great example of a trial that in inverted commas, didn't work, so to speak, but, you know, didn't necessarily give you the desired result, but certainly gave you an impactful, important result. Yeah. And I guess the result of the niacin trial really made me reflect on nephrology as a, as a, as a speciality, um, because it, that drug had been used for 50 years within cardiology circles. They're actually quite good at doing trials, and unknowingly, patients had been exposed to risk of this treatment. Um, and in nephrology, we have got many treatments which have been used for decades without trial research. Um, and we have an example in our own field um, with erythropoietin, this anemia-improving treatment, where we assumed it must be good. Um, and there, it's only been after 20 years of its use that we start to look at trials saying, well, actually, a bit too much EPO is not good for you. And we've now got these tight targets where we give you just enough but not too much. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the trials, we would never know that. Um, and so I think this all boils down to um, not about whether or not there's going to be a publication or not, but making sure that the experiment you set out is definitive so that you're setting out a question which is going to be answered by the trial. So at the end of the trial, there's a yes or a no answer. And if the answer is yes, the drug works and the drug is safe, it gets used. If the answer is the drug is not, does not work, then we know because the trial was large enough that that's excluded a large effect of the drug, is excluded a moderate effect of the drug, and what might be left is if the trial is, is, is not enormous, is that there may be a tiny small benefit, but it's probably not clinically meaningful. Yeah. And therefore that, what you might call a negative result, is still an incredibly important yeah. result. Yeah. Um, so it's, so I, think, I think the two things that we stress here is randomization and large-scale randomization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you do those two things together, you'll have a... Um, a, a really important result, whatever yeah. whatever comes out of the yeah. end of the trial. You're going to get useful data, yeah. yeah. So we take that then to move on to what you guys do. Um, so in this particular study, you're looking at a drug, is it empagliflozin? Should we just call it EMPA? EMPA, is that what you guys do? Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> Great, yeah, I'm happy to call it EMPA. Um, so I wondered if we could talk a little bit about what... So proteinuria is an independent risk factor for... Um, cardiovascular disease um and i suppose emper is, is is linked to that what why do you think those two well could you talk about what an independent risk factor is for any uh, people listening who might not really know what that is and what do we think the link could be between proteinuria and cardiovascular disease Sorry, is that a really big question? I must say I'm a scientist, not a clinician, so I don't know if that was a real hospital if, path of a question. Were, if there was a box in here and it was called Pandora's box, I think you've just opened it. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> so, um, so albinuria is something which is a very interesting risk factor because we can measure kidney function and, and kidney health in two, prim two primary ways, one with a blood test and one with a urine test. The blood test, lots of people might have heard of estimated glomerular filtration rate or EGFR, and effectively gives you a, a, an estimate of how your kidney filtration structure is filtering, the rate at which it's filtering, and as it declines, that's considered kidney disease. If it declines slowly over time, it's considered chronic kidney disease, and it may progress if your kidneys get to a low enough level to need dialysis or a kidney transplant. Whereas albinuria is a, is a marker of the health of the filtration structure, you could have perfectly normal, um, perfectly normal filtration rate, perfectly normal kidney function, but actually have some albumin detected in your urine. 
and this is a marker of perhaps early kidney disease that may develop over time. Um, and in particular, it's thought to be a marker of what we call hyperfiltration, so overfiltration, overfunction of that unit. And what we, why we call it a risk factor is because if we measure it in people's urine and identify it as being present, um, we then um, can look at this, the future risk of developing kidney problems and we find there's a very strong association, in fact one of the most strongest associations you can see between a risk factor and uh, an, an outcome. So albuminuria is a really very strong risk factor, so much so that we use it to stage kidney disease, so stage chronic kidney disease alongside the measure of kidney function. And the word independent risk factor just means that within the statistical analyses that we've taken into account other risk factors and that even if you take into account established risk factors, this albuminuria is also important. So for a given level of kidney function, whatever that might be, high, medium or low, albuminuria still is associated with risk. Okay. And so for many years we've been looking at interventions which may low albuminuria and there are some hypotheses that if you lower albuminuria, you're fixing some of the problem within the filtration structure and therefore you might modify the future risk of developing kidney disease. Um, that's not to say that um, albuminuria, um, lowering albuminuria with any kind of treatment per se is a good thing. Um, so, so people have then looked at albuminuria and the natural progression of that thought process is, well, if it's associated with kidney disease progression, might it also be associated with heart disease? And in actual fact, we do find that there's there are associations between levels of albumin in the urine and future risk of cardiac disease, having taken into account other risk factors. But you have to be a bit careful about these types of observations of study populations because they're not a randomised trial. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't mean that it is cause and effect. So it may be, for example, that you develop protein in the urine and therefore you develop kidney disease and therefore you develop heart disease. There's not a direct link. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily mean that albuminuria is a cause of heart disease. Right. Um, and to test that is actually really difficult scientifically um, because to unpick all of those pathways is actually quite complicated. Um, so instead, we don't consider albuminuria as something we're trying to target specifically as an intervention. We do measure it as a marker of hyperfiltration and we use it in ember kidney to select a group of population, a population which is at high risk. So um, in empty kidney, we don't actually necessarily need people to have albuminuria to get into the trial. If you've got low kidney function, you'll get into the trial. If you've got high kidney function and you're not at risk of kidney, kidney disease, i.e. you don't have any albuminuria, you don't get into the trial. But if you have high function but you have albuminuria, i.e. you may have early kidney disease, you still get in. Um, and so we are using albuminuria really as a a criteria in which to select people who we think are at risk of kidney disease problems right. and heart disease problems rather than thinking that albuminuria per se is the cause of all of their, right. all of their problems. Right. So it's a marker yeah. uh, of disease rather than necessarily a cause of disease. So your, your hope or your sort of idea before the trial is that EMPA will reduce the cardiovascular risk but the albuminuria is basically your readout for where they're at with their function is that right yeah so albuminuria is our way of picking patients who we think are at risk right even if we don't think the albuminuria per se is the cause of their risk it's f it's putting a flag in the sand saying this is a group of people they've got albumin in the urine or low kidney function who are at risk of heart disease <coughs> who are at risk of kidney disease progression and may benefit from benefit from impact of flows in it may not it may be that the albuminuria is not on the causal pathway it's not the cause of the disease but it's a good way to pick up yeah risk something that comes along with it yeah yeah. Um, well, could you talk a little bit about what EMPA is and what you think it might be doing? <laughs> so empagliflozin um, is a one of a class of drugs called, um, I'm afraid all these drugs have terrible acronyms, SGLT2 inhibitors. Right. Um, actually, there, there are a few of these. They're on the market now. People take them already for diabetes. Um, all of them end in the, all of them end with gliflozin on the name. So canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, empagliflozin. They're all one of these SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, they actually apparently come from um, the bark of the apple tree. There's a compound in apple tree bark called florazin, oh. um, which um, is the sort of the crude version of a gliflozin drug. So that's where they come from. So they've been known about for a long time, but they've only really been in clinical use for probably less than 10 years. Um, so they inhibit something called sodium glucose transport inhibitor and they were developed to treat diabetes because when your kidneys work all the sugar in your blood uh, gets filtered into your urine uh, through the 
in the kidney. And obviously that wouldn't be a really good, that wouldn't be a very good thing um, just to let all that glucose then just go out, you just peered out because then we'd all just be staggering around with very yeah. low blood sugar all the time and wouldn't be able to do anything much. So the, your kidney has um, this system called the SGLT, SGLT system, which reabsorbs all the glucose back from your urine back into your bloodstream. And there's two main transporters that do that, SGLT1 and SGLT2. SGLT2 does the bulk of the work. Um, and so they were de these drugs were developed because for people with diabetes who have too much sugar going around in their blood, if you could persuade the kidney to reabsorb a bit less and let them yeah. pee out the excess glucose, yeah. you could improve their glucose control. And they do that reasonably well. Um, so, um, and that's why, they, that's why they were developed and how they first got used. Um, and nephrology, kidney, kidney medicine has benefited a bit from some rules in the diabetes world um, because um, about 15 years ago, the American drug regulator, the FDA, decided that if there was going to be a new drug for diabetes on the market, um, it could go on the market if it could show that it could lower glucose. But as a commitment, if it was allowed on the market, they forced the manufacturers of the drug to commit to running big trials to test the safety of these drugs. Right. Um, because of some an unfortunate example where one particular drug actually turned out possibly to be harmful. So they, they run these big safety trials to show, try and show that these drugs aren't causing any harm, in particular cardiovascular harm. Um, and so all the SGLT2 inhibitors came along. They, got, they showed that they could lower glucose. They got put on the market. But as a, commit, as, um, as a condition of that, they then ran these big trials. And they, what, they sh what these trials showed surprised people a lot because they showed that these drugs reduced cardiovascular disease so there was no there was no, absolutely no evidence of any harm most people were expecting them just to be um, benign as far as cardiovascular disease was concerned but actually they reduced it and so that actually shook the diabetes world up a bit um, and then fortunately the people some of the people running those trials were thoughtful enough that they also measured kidney function quite carefully right. in these people yeah and when they then looked at that they found out that these drugs were actually appeared to be protecting the kidney so Admittedly, the people that got into these trials didn't have, didn't really have chronic kidney disease to begin with, but it seemed that their kidneys were doing better by the end of the trial right. than the people who'd been on placebo. So then, a lot of interest developed in these drugs to see whether they could actually benefit um, people with kidney disease, and that's that's where the trial like Emper Kidney and there are other trials a bit like Emper Kidney going on came from was to see whether those benefits were real and whether they were also applied to people um, with proper kidney that's disease. That's a really nice offshoot actually, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess my personal reflection on this was, I mean, if, if your bathroom is anything like my bathroom, there is a stack of journals um, with enormous numbers of, of articles, all looking at many different interventions, many different mechanisms, many different targets. And you sit down and you don't know which one is likely to be the next, the next great treatment. Um, and you can remember where you are when you read a paper. This one um, forced me to sit down. Um, the, so the results of something called the Empereg outcome trial, which Richard was describing, it was a very large trial. It was randomized. It was double blind. It was a definitive test of an intervention. There was almost no question that although these analyses in some respects were post hoc looking at the data afterwards, they were so clear um, that they'd raised such a strong hypothesis that it, there was no doubt in my mind almost instantly that for the next five, six years, I mean, you could dedicate nearly all of your time to try and answer the question definitively within a kidney population whether or not this drug works. Um, and that's where really the first ideas for Emper Kidney came from. It was seeing the results of a large trial in another population and realizing this drug really worked in that population could it work in the types of patients who were not represented yeah. in that trial yeah. but are present in our kidney clinics who are at much higher risk and who really haven't had many treatments demonstrated to work in them over the many years by, by a trial environment. So I remember exactly where I was. And it was very exciting and it took 18 months, two years to obtain the relevant funding for the trial. Right. Um, and Rich and I are dedicating most of our waking hours mm -hmm. just to answer this one question over the next for those next five years um, but the reason is, is because the randomized trials that have been done already really give us really robust scientific um, hypothesis yeah. 
which we can then test. I mean, that's life. incredible pilot data, really, <laughs> isn't it? You know, because uh, that's essentially what it is. But it's like your really high impact, published, reliable pilot data. So, yeah, that's quite a nice gift from those guys. Yes. Yeah, so, and what what's really nice is that we designed the protocol for Emperor Kidney, and there are other interventions a bit like empagliflozin, other empagliflozins. There's other names, depagliflozin, um, uh, to name one, and. Um, and essentially, they all started to do trials similar to the Emperor outcome. And so when you see a really amazing trial result, you wonder if it's too good to be true. But we kept seeing these wonderful results, all studying the same lower-risk population with diabetes. Um, and so although the trial was already running with Emperor Kidney, um, we just kept the hypothesis that we were testing just kept getting stronger. Um, and what's been really nice is in the last few months, in fact, at the end of last year, is that the first trials studying people without diabetes have come out. So these drugs were initially designed for treating people with diabetes, um, but uh, they showed benefits both in risks of heart disease, particularly heart failure, and benefits for kidney progression. And we jumped on the um, kidney question and are doing Ember Kidney to answer that, but others have been looking at the heart failure question and looking specifically at people with heart failure and studying these drugs in a placebo-controlled way double-blind, large-scale, randomized evidence, but looking at heart failure and heart outcomes. And last year, we reported a trial which definitively demonstrated the benefits of these drugs in preventing hospitalization for heart failure and death from heart disease in people with certain types of heart failure, irrespective of whether or not they have diabetes or not. Right. And in fact, what was really striking <coughs> is the result in people without diabetes looked almost identical to the result in the people with diabetes. Wow. Wow. So, and really another nice example of if you do a large-scale randomized trial, your hypothesis might have been what's well, going to work in the people with diabetes but not in the people without. So let's just study people with diabetes. But instead they studied both. Right. And at the end of the trial, you get the answer for both populations yeah. if it is large enough. And if you're going to all this effort of you know getting your ethics and setting your questions up, then why not just try and collect more people if you've got the facility to do that? Because then, like you say, you pull out answers to questions that you... Yeah, necessarily, weren't necessarily your principal question, but if you've got the structure there, then get the data. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's, yeah. so the only people we try and, um, if you like, keep out of a trial like Emperor Kidney are people who um, aren't at risk, so don't stand to benefit because they, if they don't have kidney disease, so there's no way that we can stop them from developing um, bad kidney disease if they don't have it to begin yeah. with. So why we wouldn't want to include them, or if there's a group of people that we, for some reason, we suspect this really isn't the right drug for them. If there's really good evidence that the drug might, we either already know that it already works, or we have very good evidence that it's it's bad for this particular group of people, yeah. then keep them out for their own good. But otherwise, um, go try yeah. and get it, study it in everyone. Get the data. So, yeah. So kidneys, kidneys are funny. They sort of tidy your house by throwing everything out and taking back in what they want which isn't necessarily the way i tidy up but hey fair play to them um so they let all the glucose go and via sglt one and two they take back in the glucose they want and emper will basically tell sglt2 look we don't need to take all that glucose back in there's too much glucose in the blood anyway let some of it go and then over the long term they'll probably be better glucose control in the blood of these patients which hopefully in the long term will lower their cardiovascular risk um for the, for the rest of their life hopefully is that what we're looking at i think that's some of what we're looking at okay. i don't i don't think um with all the all the interesting trial results that will's been talking about coming out in all sorts of different fields the next question everybody lots of people want to know is well how do these drugs work mm -hmm. and what you've described is what's known as the is probably the the fundamental thing the drugs do is that they let more glucose out in the urine. But with the glucose, the SGLT2, and probably the S is probably really important, the drugs were developed because of the G, the glucose bit, but the sodium that they let out is probably very important. So if you look at what these drugs do on things like blood pressure, they lower blood pressure. They lower blood glucose, you've already said that. They help people lose weight. So going on one of these drugs, people lose two, three, four kilograms in weight typically. And they have all sorts of other effects on metabolism. And there's a lot of work now going on into finding out, well, what exactly do these drugs do? And what is the mechanism of their benefit? If they're going to have these benefits, how does it, how does it work? Actually, trials aren't 
terribly good at working out mechanisms. Right. But actually, what trials are very, very good at is working out whether the drug works or not. And in my simplistic mind, if the drug works, I don't really care how it works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I'll let somebody else go and do the research and work out the precise mechanism. I think there's a, there's probably many there are probably many many different mechanisms, um, and so there's a lot of research to be done. I think my particular interest is to just find out does the drug work or not in yeah. the first place, yeah. and then I'll hand over to the the real boffins who can work out the the molecular goings on. Do you know something? You really take me back with those comments. I did. Um, I did a, a master's in imaging and there was a lot of physics about microscopes and really deep trigonometry. And I just remember banging my head against the wall and just thinking, I don't really care how the microscope works. I just want to look down and see. So, so, so I spent months of my life thinking, I don't care how it works. I just care that it does. I care that I turn it on and the computer screen comes on and I can image. Um, yeah, so I really, really empathize with that feeling. Um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. What are your hopes? I know, I know you sort of, you know, one shouldn't necessarily have hopes during an experiment, but because you've pinned everything down in, in advance and it's unbiased and you've got all this committee with the oversight and it's all quite independent in that sense, it's probably okay to have hopes or thoughts for you guys as you go along. So what are your sort of hopes? So, so I think in terms of the trial itself, the result will be the result. <clears throat> the drug, someone, the all-knowing being, from above knows whether or not this is a treatment that works or not <clears throat> we will find out in a few years time um, and as soon as the result is known we will try and make it as widely known to the renal community um, the patients and the doctors so that if the drug does work it gets adopted and used and people get the information they need to be able to use it safely um, but on, what I'm really hoping is that this trial does a few more things so um, we don't do trials just to answer the scientific question actually we also are very interested in how we conduct the trials we want to make trials easier for to do easier for patients to get involved in easy for um, renal units to integrate trials into part of the clinical care i think the best practice is when you've given all the treatments you know work and your patient's still at risk and still has kidney disease progression or still at risk of heart disease that you get them into a trial and you offer them a trial and from a patient's perspective our current knowledge is based on all of the volunteers of the past, but we still have a lot to learn and we need more patient volunteers to volunteer for trials of the future. And so if we can make a trial which makes it easy for them, we can't promise to fix the car parking in the hospitals, but if we can make every other aspect of doing a trial easy for them, easy for their doctors, and we can do it in a way which is um, cost effective, so more trials can be done with nephrology with the limiting funding resources that are available from charities and from governments, then we can start to roll out a vision of more trials in nephrology. So once we've answered this question, we can go on to the next burning question and answer that definitively. So that is my actual hope in the long term, is that we get an answer to this question and then we're able to move forward and answer the next question um, in a similar way, um, uh, making sure the collaboration, the international nephrology collaboration behind this trial, it's running in eight countries, um, can continue to answer questions in the future. But that's a great point, actually, in that in setting up this study, it's not necessarily just about this drug. You're setting up an infrastructure, a network, a collaboration, whereby it should be easier, faster, and hopefully cheaper to set these things up again. Yes, it's not only the infrastructure, but it's also the, the thought process and the methods behind it, because over the years, trials have got increasingly complicated, and as they get increasingly complicated and expensive, the size tends to go down. And therefore, the chances of answering the, que the answer the question you're asking definitively goes down. So we want to try and make trials really easy to do, and so they can be large, and so they can be definitive. Um, there are certain kidney conditions which are rarer, and so if you want to study that particular condition, you need to start to find ways in which you can bring collaborations together, bring all the patients to get involved. And I think we've been thinking about ways in which we can conduct trials where we can get uh, wide, uh, wide levels of registration of patients with rarer diseases. Um, we've got great systems in the UK, but around the world there needs to be disease registers for people with kidney disease. Um, and those disease registers, when they set themselves up, should be asking patients if they want to be considered for research. So the next time a really big burning question comes along, we can go out to the patients directly with appropriate ethical approval and say, we've got this new experiment. Do you want to be part of it? It passes on um, the opportunities of the patients rather than being hand-selected by 
their doctors locally um, the patients know about these trials and they can turn up to their doctor's clinics with the information if it's saying could I go to this trial have you got any concerns that's probably quite empowering and probably makes them feel a bit more in control of things and at least that they're contributing to the to the research so that's quite nice yeah I mean I think Will makes a really a really important point that um, trials are at a, at a bit of a crisis situation if you look at sort of internationally and beyond kidney disease at the moment because um, the regulations which we have to adhere to to run trials are getting more and more complex um, and not for good reasons unfortunately that um, because they've forgotten the sort of scientific principles which underlie trials things like the strength of randomization and all the benefits that that gives you um, and as trials become more complex they become more expensive as Will said and so the number of trials that are being done is declining and that that is I think a real risk to medicine generally that if we can no longer do trials we'll no longer find out which drugs work and which ones don't um, and I think people are in a react in a partly in a reaction to that are looking at other ways to try and work out whether treatments work or not and there's a um, a lot of work being done in in so-called real world data or real world evidence which doesn't have randomization at its heart and without that they can't reliably tell you whether the drug works or not the real world data on niacin was completely misleading um, and well there's already been someone in control of a decision exactly. and perhaps a biased decision exactly. knowingly or unknowingly yeah so the doc yeah whether you give the treatment or not is not you don't want a doctor to just decide that um, without a good reason or not so yeah so the that, so they're adopting that instead, which I think will lead us could lead us in the wrong direction. So it's really important that trials are made as simple as possible, so that they can be as large as possible, and there can be as many of them as possible, so that we can, so they can reach all sorts of different um, patients out there, um, all the different questions that there, because there are loads of really good questions that need to be answered. Uh, we can come up with questions as kidney doctors, but patients can come up with much better questions that they want the answer to. Um, but if We've got to make trials simple and easy to do so that those questions um, can be answered. And I think um, in nephrology, we're particularly well placed to harness these electronic data sets, which Richard refers to as real world data. So as people go to hospital, their information is recorded into electronic healthcare records. Um, and nephrology has been at the forefront of these systems. So from the 1960s and 70s, when the first dialysis units were set up, at the same time there were nephrologists developing IT systems to be able to monitor the regular, um, regular admissions of the patients for their treatments. So we, in many respects, lead the world in terms of the IT development, and we can start to take these IT systems and start to develop them for the use in conducting trials. So rather than making the designs of trials complicated, we can make the conduct of trials simpler um, in, in, in order to try and answer definitive questions. And in nephrology, we have this particular advantage of having electronic healthcare systems which are well developed, which we can use to invite patients, and then we use to follow up patients, both during the trial and after the trial, to see the long-term effects of these treatments. So nephrology really is in a position to really challenge the paradigm of over-regulation, potentially, or some somewhat burdensome regulation on trials, um, some over-complicated over aspects of conduct, which has resulted in trials over the years um, becoming more expensive and more difficult to run. We are really a specialty where we can really benefit, um, provided we as a community, and I mean a community of patients, um, as well as nephrologists and their families, embrace the idea of randomization and large-scale randomization in order to answer the key questions one by one in this systematic approach. How rigid are clinicians in their thinking? So if you've gone through your training under a particular consultant at a particular hospital and they like to use treatment, this treatment X, again, perhaps without evidence base, but that's just what they've always used at that hospital, and then you guys might pitch up and say, actually, we've done this trial and that, that drug doesn't work. We should probably use this one. Do you think the community would be quite good at adapting to the clinical evidence or would they be quite stuck in their ways to the treatment they've always used? Um, so you're asking us to dig ourselves into a hole with all of the people who've trained us. <laughs> um, but maybe they're not the biggest fan of podcasts, so we might be safe. Um, I think... I think increasingly people are recognizing the value of randomized trials to answer questions and to change the way that we think and are willing to i think one word which often comes up when you think about trials is humility to be able to say we don't know we're prepared to admit we don't know and we're going to test it with a randomized trial and i think increasingly people are happy to do that 
don't see it as a sign of weakness. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I didn't mean that as a slight on um, clinicians. Obviously, I suppose each clinician in every isolated event is going to do what they think is best, and if what they think is best is this drug that they've always used, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, sure in their own mind that it works. I suppose it speaks a bit more to sensing the world with our human senses that weren't designed to analyze this sort of thing you know so you sort of get a natural gut feeling for something but actually the trials are important because they take that human gut feeling out of it and just look at it in its most raw most pure sense so yeah i didn't mean to dig out the the clinicians sort of deliberately not using evidence but i suppose it's just human nature that if you've done something and it's always worked why would you change it and I guess, so that's when you ask the question, the humility and the uncertainty, being willing to essentially open yourselves up to the chance that you don't make the decision on what the patient gets, the toss of the coin decides. Um, but it's also at the end of the trial, realizing that um, the blood, sweat and tears of so many thousands of people, and per kidney, for example, is going to be five to 6,000 patients taking an extra tablet every day um, for three to four years. It will probably involve up to 1,000 members of research staff around the world um, all contributing to this one question um, and to realize at the end of the day when uh, the results come out to just spend some time reflecting on those efforts um, it's the, the nephrologists other doctors are so quick to question the results of the trial um, say well you should have done it a different way or what happened in this subgroup of patients just spend some time looking at the, the science um, reflecting on the fact that this is large-scale um, it is systematic um, and um, sort of really spending time to think about whether or not it does impact on your practice or not um, because um, it really respects the efforts of the patients and all of the nephrologists around the world that have been doing them. It's so easy to dismiss a result very quickly on mm. hearing the headline. Um, so, um, so, yes, so I, I think the scale and the effort that goes into these trials is not as well recognized mm. um, amongst those that don't do the trials. Mm. Um, so um, so we hope that that will be recognized, the reliability of the results will be recognized. And so if it shows that the drug works or doesn't work, that nephrologists will take that yeah. as a reliable answer and have it have an impact on their practice so it can have an impact on the patient. Otherwise, it would have been a waste of our time yeah. and all of the participants' time. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to a problem we have in, in bench science as well, isn't that? you send your paper for publication and reviewer two comes back and says oh but you didn't look at this now there's probably a good reason you didn't look at that you know science is full of compromises do you do number choice number one or choice number two and you come to the best choice you can and there'll be good hopefully good reasons why you've done that and then, like you say if you've got thousands of people working on a clinical trial there will be really good reasons why decisions were made so to just toss something out of hand because it's not necessarily the way you would have done it as one person in the five minutes you've spent in your bathroom thinking about this study design compared to the many thousands of man hours that have gone into designing a trial so maybe a have a little bit of trust that if they didn't do it in the way you wanted there was a good reason for it or b drop the corresponding author an email if you're concerned i'm sure they'd be happy to tell you why a decision was made um no that all sounds great so I know you guys probably don't get much spare time if you're doing the trial six days a week and then your clinic commitments alongside that um but just to get pictures of you guys as a whole and the kind of people who are doing this research what sort of things do you like to get up if and when you have any spare time <laughs> um, obviously reading journals in the bathroom is, is a big one for you Will. Well, I'm not sitting in the bathroom reading a journal um, uh, I'm a, uh, I like I think quite a few other nephrologists around the UK I'm a keen cyclist right um, I, it generates a lot of data um, and the, the electronic developments recently have enabled me to do it in my cellar all winter um, without keeping the family up on a on a bike, so I spend uh, a good hour a day uh, debriefing in my own head um, and thinking about the, the our research in the cellar on my bike. Yeah, so on your turbo trader, and then just generating more data for you to dissect. <laughs> Precisely. Then there's a good there's some analysis to do after the ride. Yeah, sounds good. Um, usually, when I'm I'm not here, I'll probably be found either on the side of a netball court watching my daughter, um, or on the side of a football pitch. Um, watching my son that seems to be um how i spend professional supporter professional supporter um increasingly incompetent participant <laughs> okay um and you're nice to the referees uh, very, or, yeah very polite yeah good <laughs> assume you've got uh, good memories of the netballing from your your career in the past yeah, she, like doesn't, the... she doesn't accept my coaching <laughs> <laughs> cool well, that's probably about it unless there's any messages 
you guys wanted to get across? No, other than the fact that other than that, we trials requires collaboration, requires volunteers. It requires more ontologists to dedicate a lot of their time to doing it. Um, more patients to um, realise the benefits of getting into um, randomised research, and also for junior um, clinicians working in nephrology to consider going into trials as part of their time. It's a different experience. It's not the lab. There'll be no microscopes. There'll be a <laughs> lot of administrative work, but there will be some science. And so a call to arms to nephrology to get involved in more large-scale trials. Yeah, so they don't have to be scared of breaking equipment. Um, they'll be okay. <laughs> Okay, so that was our interview with um, Will and Richard. I hope you enjoyed it. I think if you listen to the intro of the podcast and then listen to what Will and Richard had to say, you might notice that I've learned a lot from that. So I was sort of initially of the idea that you'd want to keep your inclusion criteria quite tight so that you've got a very homogenous group of patients, patients that are all very similar, very similar diseases, um, and then you can see the effect of the treatment quite clearly but what Will had to say was really interesting in that you know once you've gone to the effort of setting up all this trial you might as well collect as much data from as many people as possible and that that population within your clinical trial should be really representative of the population that appears in clinic so they were they were basically accepting anyone who had any sort of ongoing kidney condition and that means that when they unblind after three years um, they can sort of they've got representative data from a population that is very similar to the population they might get on any given day in the clinic so that was really interesting to learn what really came across for me was how well managed clinical trials are that there are independent bodies that are keeping track of the data as the experiment goes on I think at some point if a drug is so effective that it's clearly having a massive beneficial effect for the patients they can stop the trial early um, because it's unethical under those circumstances to be giving patients placebo when there's a clearly superior treatment available. Um, equally, it's it's really important to know that these people are monitoring in case the treatment is clearly harmful for the patients, in which case they can stop the trial. That was really interesting to know. That's something I didn't know before. Um, well, all the best to them. And I really hope when that fateful day arrives at the end of their study, when they do the unblinding, that... Um, well, either way, either the drug has an effect or it doesn't, but it sounds like it's really, really well thought out, so they should get some def- really get some useful data from that. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a lot about clinical trials, and I hope you learned a lot about EMPA and how that might work um, to reduce cardiovascular risk in patients with chronic kidney disease. If you have any questions, please do get in touch via our Twitter page, which is at KeepItRenal, um, or our Facebook page, which is also called KeepItRenal. We're trying to build a community there, so please do give us feedback in terms of the um, episodes you might like to hear, issues you might like to be discussed on the podcast, and we can find relevant experts to help us explore those issues. Um, And in the meantime, take care. I hope you're well. Um, Enjoy listening. Share, 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 and like, like, like. Please spread the word about this podcast. We need to get it out to as many people as possible. Um, And in that sense, we can answer as many questions as possible. Um, But thank you so much for your support so far. And see you on the next episode. Take care.